Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Janice Brainy, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> T- total kudos on the name. I-, I can't believe. And I was actually looking through your resume before we uh, recorded. I'm thinking this lady is far smarter than uh, Jeremy and myself, probably combined. I think if we were to have a trivia pub quiz sort of thing, you'd, and if Jeremy and myself teamed up, you'd beat us quite comfortably. <laughs> I, I think I go all right, actually, on the old pub quiz. Thanks, Brad. You checked. Yeah. But I think, I, I, so Janice, you're calling from Utah, is that right? Yeah, I live in Utah right now. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's, there's I was actually thinking for, um, in the letter, there's two things I know about Utah. So number one is it's home to obviously the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, so the, or the Mormons, as they're often known. And the second thing is obviously the, it's home to the Utah Jazz. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Utah jazz basketball history, Janice, but one of your superstars is Carl Malone, who was a NBA MVP back in the late 90s, I think. And, and But he is actually the recipient of the greatest sporting sledge or criticism of all time. Do you know this backstory, by the way? No, not at all. Oh, neither neither oh, do I, buddy. Well, so the well this, is, this is the pub quiz trivia that I know. So <laughs> basically, Carl Malone, is, this is the game one of the 1997 NBA uh, finals. And Carl Malone has actually been fouled by Dennis Rodman. He's, he steps up to the free throw line. And Carl Malone is a superstar, very accurate from the free throw line. And his nickname is the mailman because he, he, he delivers, you know. And apparently Scotty Pippen has walked up to him at the uh, free throw line and says to him, just before he throws his shot, the mailman never delivers on Sunday. And uh, <laughs> so basically through him, mailman misses his first shot and then is known to swear quite profusively and then misses his second shot. And then on the back of that, someone, uh, one of the Chicago Bulls players gets a rebound and very quickly it's in the hands of Michael Jordan and Jordan shoots a free throw and wins the game. Wow. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Brad. That just blew my mind. So, Janice... Yeah, you know, welcome to the to the show. If you haven't listened to it, we uh, like to have a bit of fun, but we are really passionate about the ocean, and we're all things to do with the ocean. So we have a range of different guests, and I think a good friend of ours, Chris Gray, sent us a link to one of the articles uh, that I believe that you've written, and then Brad reached out to you, and 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 that's how this podcast world, especially in COVID, is is, is great because. Usually, it would, it would take people to physically get together and you know a bit of organisation. Now it's 
jump on a Zoom call and, and next thing you know, we're talking to you to yourself in Utah. So can you tell us a bit about where you've come from, who you are? Um, have you always lived in, in Utah? Give us a bit of a backstory. We love a good backstory. Okay. Um, I'm actually Canadian. I was born in Montreal and then my family moved to British Columbia where I did uh, my first two degrees or I finished my first two degrees at Simon Fraser um, University. And then I did my PhD in Boulder, Colorado, before going back to BC for a postdoc, and then to Utah for my faculty position. Wow! So that, that that's quite a few credentials. And so I've got a headache. <laughs> and sorry, you're you're currently assistant professor at the University of Utah. Is that correct? At Utah State University. Utah yeah. State University. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, that's awesome. But can I tell you, getting back to this, um, how this interview came about, like one of our friends, yeah, Chris Gray, sent us an article saying, hey, you got to check out this. And it's, to be honest, it's one of the more scary articles that I've seen in relation to plastic pollution. And so it was in early June, uh, Chris sent us this article, and I'll read it out because it certainly got my attention. So it was an article by uh, Wired Science. And this is the headline. It basically says, and I'll quote it, new research has confirmed an increasingly hellish scenario. Microplastics are now in Earth's atmospheric systems. And it says a study found that over a thousand metric tons of microplastic particles fell in 11 protected areas in the US. And that happens every year. And that's essentially the equivalent of about 120 million plastic water bottles falling into protected, essentially pristine areas in the States. And obviously, we, you, you click on the link and then you come to your article. And obviously, you're the author. And then we go, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to talk to this amazing researcher? And you were like, yeah, I'm happy to come on the show. And we're like, great. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really keen uh, in my sort of nerdy sort of way to actually dig further into the detail of this paper. And just for the, uh, the listener, the paper was actually published in the Journal of Science in June 2020, and it's called Plastic Rain in Protected Areas of the United States. So I don't even know where to begin. So Maybe a good place to start is that it was actually an accident. So I, I study dust in general, and I'm really interested in what dust is made out of and what its potential impacts are on pristine environments. Um, right now, we, we don't monitor at the atmospheric movement of large particles. There's a lot of networks out there that monitor really fine particles, so dust or aerosols that are smaller than 10 microns in size. But we know that a lot of what moves through the atmosphere is a lot bigger than that. Um, and there's some evidence that it has a lot of nutrients, it can have metals, it can have all kinds of stuff in it. And we re really didn't have a very good handle, or still don't have a really good handle on what's moving through the atmosphere and what are the implications of that. So I set up a study to try and answer that question. So um, because there wasn't even a way to really measure what I was trying to understand. I had to actually design a sampler in order to do the study and propose to the National Atmospheric Deposition Program that they let me use their network. And they agreed to let me use their network and I found an engineer that helped me build this sampler. We were just in the pilot testing phase of this project when I started looking at the samples to see, you know, what's in it? Is it bug parts? Is it mm. 
soil? Is it minerals? How does that change over space and time? And then I saw red fibers and blue fibers and a blue microbead and a pink microbead. And I was like, what, what is going on? And then I, I looked at another sample, looked at another sample and realized that now we have microplastics falling out of the sky. And so then I decided to completely redirect my efforts um, to try to understand how much is coming out, where is it coming from, you know, what can we say about what the major sources are and how it's moving through the atmosphere. And, and if I can just chime in there, so the the you weren't actually looking for plastic, you weren't looking for microplastics. You were basically saying, "Hey, let's look, let's sample what's coming out of our atmosphere, thinking we might catch some bugs and some dirt and and whatever." And so no one's actually done a similar study like this before either. So you actually had to develop your own sampling equipment and analytical methods. Yeah. So I, I'm really interested in how much, how many are in nutrient deposition. So I want to quantify the nutrients that are falling out of the sky in dust. And in order to do that properly, you need to be able to collect the sample dry and the methods that are available require water to remove the sample or impact the dust on a filter, which you can then, then it's difficult to get the dust off the filter. So I needed to develop a way to sample what falls out of the sky dry and keep it dry so that I can understand its composition. So what what did you do? I mean, like you just, yeah, please explain because it's really interesting. I mean, you, you go out yeah, there and just I try would... and catch stuff with a sieve. I mean, what's the, <laughs> what's the go? I was, I was talking through the problem with someone and I was like, you know, the problem is, is that um, a lot of people use marbles and that traps the dust and then um, it prevents it from getting blown out of the sampler with wind, mm. but then you have to wash it and it's marbles are a pain, especially if mm. you're working in really remote areas. You mean like li- little marbles? Yeah, like glass marbles, like a, what a child might play okay, with. Okay, so you put um, them in and then it well, hopefully would stop the stuff coming. Okay, I get you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's what a lot of people use, but it's just very the handling is is difficult and you have to wash the sample out and then you immediately change the chemistry of the sample. And you also just can't recover all the material. So you can't get a really accurate deposition rate. So I was just explaining the problem to someone and, and, and thinking, and he, he was a physicist. And I was like, if, if I just had like a bunch of filters that could filter out the material and keep it dry and then mm. protect it. And then we started talking about different ways to wind baffle and then we literally just went to um home depot and bought some buckets and screens and stacked them and then i put dirt at the bottom of the bucket and then he drove around while i stuck it out the window of the car to see how many screens it would take to stop the wind from moving the sample out of our sampler (laughs) so it was really like the initial trial stages of building the sampler were were really just very basic and then once we knew the concept worked um, but i'm not an engineer i needed to contact somebody who could help me build these really professionally and make them work in the elements in remote areas and not fall apart and so you've just got i guess a, a small number of these sample spots and you and you've obviously uncovered it and to see what you've actually discovered and, and as you indicated before you've all of a sudden seen all these colors like reds and blues what, what was that moment like you're like hang on what yeah at first i was like i saw a fiber and i was like oh no i contaminated my sample with my shirt <laughs> and i was like oh how did i do that because we tried to do everything in fume hoods and we're really careful 
Uh, but then I kept scrolling and I was like, nope, there wasn't a pink microbead in my shirt. And I just kept seeing so many different shapes and colors and different kinds of fibers that there was no way this was coming from one person or one source of contamination. And then I looked at more and more samples and then I realized I was looking at something that was really, really important and really big. And so I just, yeah, spent evenings and weekends for maybe a year and a half just counting these um, plastics and trying to get a really concrete, solid data set that we could then use atmospheric models to try to understand where the plastics are coming from. And so just to confirm, where were these sampling sites located? So we had 11 different national park and wilderness areas in southwestern United States. Since we were targeting dust to begin with, we chose the more arid areas of the United States. So from Joshua Tree in California to the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming and various places in between. So these are really iconic, desolate, remote you'd almost say pristine, untouched by too much human activity. So kind of the last place you'd expect to see, it's not downtown LA, it's not New York City. It's more like Bendigo, mate. (laughs) That's my hometown, Janice, by the way. (laughs) But uh, it's it's not an area that you'd anticipate much in the way of plastic atmospheric pollution really well, yeah there's no there's no people out there you know urbanization right. hasn't occurred out there so you'd be like well hey this is you know should be pristine so obviously your your research says other otherwise but before we go on to that can we go back to this contraption i've just tried to google <laughs> it you know can you just give us an indication on you know from driving out uh, with your friend you know, out of the car, holding up the screen. I mean, I, I love stories like this. Where did you end <laughs> up? Or what, what was the end mechanism? You had 11 of these. You obviously had to pump them out. What, what did it end up looking like? Yeah, so it's, it, it's a glass plate about 10 inches in diameter, and then it has a series of screens of different pore sizes above it. And it fits within the National Atmospheric Deposition Program's sampling apparatus. So I wanted to build it specifically so that I could put it on their system um, out with where they collect their data. So it sits in this bucket and it has a lid. It's very, it's really very simple. And the screens, the multiple screening prevents any accidental contamination like bird droppings or a leaf from getting into the sample that we're interested in. And the screens actually act as this wind baffle, so it prevents the you know, wind from taking any of the sample out of the sampler. And then um, I recover it using a, ster- a sterile razor-, razor blade on the glass. I just scrape it up and put it into it. Yep, <laughs> put it into our our sample container. So really, it's simple. It works really well for how simple it is. So so presuming you start off with a larger pore size at the top and then go down to yeah. a smaller pore size, so then the particles yeah. can't go back up. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Wow. And, and so pollution or, say, plastics or other debris will enter this system via direct basically atmospheric fallout. So that might be falling from the sky, like in, in the air, in dry weather conditions, or it might actually come down with rain. Rain, yeah. Yeah, so these samplers that I wanted it to work with have a sensor. So when it starts raining, it moves this automatic lid covering the rain bucket under dry conditions. And then when it starts to rain, it has a sensor and it moves the lid 
over to the dry bucket and the mm. rain bucket mm. then collects the what oh. comes out with rain oh, and so wow. that allowed us to collect independently what falls out with rain oh, and what cool. falls out with gravity which turned out to be really important for the study because there's different mechanisms mm. moving plastic under these different conditions yeah wow so so you know from 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 my point of view you've got all this stuff up in the atmosphere and when it rains you know the raindrops physically collecting stuff along its way before it hits the ground or hits right. your device wow and that obviously is going to be a lot different to when it's not raining you know you're going to get a different sample uh, it's just fascinating i mean we yeah. we spend um uh, Brad and, and Mike and Warren and, and, and lots of guys back at uh, at Ocean Protect HQ in Sydney, I think we've got five or six different uh, stormwater devices that we're currently sampling or, you know, every time it rains and we use automatic samplers and telemetry units and rain gauges. So we're, I'm sort of hearing your language and I sort of understand, mm. but I've just never heard of the concept of measuring what's up in the air. It's just, it's fascinating and, um, yeah, well, and scary as well. Yeah, and just to confirm, this apparatus says no one has actually done sort of atmospheric plastic measurement before using an, an equipment like this or something else. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, uh, some there's were t two other papers that came out last year that looked at atmospheric deposition. One looked at uh, snow, uh, so they inferred deposition from what they found in the snow. Mm. And another one was from the Pyrenees in Europe. Yeah. And, yeah. So what they did was they had what's called a bulk sampler. So they collected um, what came out of the sky under both wet and dry conditions over a longer period of time than we did. Yeah, so that was the first paper that came that came out. It actually was really wonderful to see, but also made us really nervous because we yeah. were pretty deep into our study and we were like, oh. <laughs> "They're going to steal our thunder." <laughs> but it, it it worked out great. They're they're both great studies. But one of the advantages we had was that we were collecting in more locations, um, and we had weekly resolution for wet deposition and monthly resolution for dry deposition. And we had 14 months of data. So that allowed us to do a lot of analyses with what we found that could help us understand more about where the plastics were coming from. Yeah. And, and look, I'll, I'll, I won't come back to this study, but just for the listeners. So I'll include show notes to both of those uh, articles in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, there was an uh, article released, I think, in April last year about 
how we're finding or scientists were finding microplastics on top of the French Pyrenees, uh, like a mountaintop, uh, which is bizarre. Like how, how on earth – and that's what I guess people started thinking. How on earth is plastic getting to the top of the Pyrenees? And then there was that other study you referred to where they uh, – a whole bunch of scientists, I think uh, community scientists or citizen scientists, took some samples of snow from the Arctic uh, and found really high levels of uh, microplastics, like crazy numbers. I think there was – I'm just looking at one of the articles that was saying how – uh, in, in one uh, sample, they found uh, 150,000 microplastic pieces, 150,000 in a, in just one litre of snow. And those sort of numbers are like, you, you listen to them and you're like, it's hard to get your head around. They're crazy Mate, that's, scary. Uh, that, that, that's a good point. I can't remember who we were speaking to. I think it was Dr. Jennifer Lavers. Mm. When, when the numbers get so big, yeah, people sort of just seem to, you know, don't really care, you know, you're talking about 250 million pieces yeah. of plastic per square metre. <clears throat> it almost, it's beyond people. So it, oh, it's so scary. Well, that's one of the reasons why we boil the numbers down to deposition rates per day, because if mm. we looked at them by year, it would be this very big number. But it was, you know, pretty striking to see 400 plastics per metre square per day. That's something that people can really visualise and understand. Mm. Yeah, and when you can, if you measure sort of plastic in an area like snow or on top of a mountaintop, for example, you, you have a, an idea of the concentration, but you have no idea of actually how uh, the deposition rate. So that that plastic could have been deposited fifty years ago, for all we know, uh, on top of a mountaintop. But if you if you're measuring deposition rate in a in a pristine area, and those numbers are still scary. It's it's just fascinating, and it's just obviously building this data set. Uh, and I guess the key question I have also, just getting back to one comment that um, I remember Jennifer Labors was saying. She's one of our former uh, podcast guests, Janice, who was um, uh, she's a uh, at the University of Tasmania, and she was basically saying how a lot of these scientific questions, you know, how much plastic, for example, is in the ocean, or how much plastic is being deposited, for example, a lot of people just don't want to ask the question. And it's seemingly because they just don't want to know the answer. And like obviously science translates literally to know, but a lot of people just don't want to know how bad this problem is. And that's why I thought it was so interesting that your study was essentially highlighting a, a significant issue with very robust science. Yeah, and I think it's it's very tangible, unlike a lot of other looming disasters in our future mm. Plastics is something that everybody can understand because we use it every day. We can see it every day. We watch ourselves throw it out. And seeing images of plastics in an organism or on a landscape or even these microscopic pictures from dust, I think it's something that people can really wrap their heads around mm. and recognize it as something that they're responsible for mm. ultimately. Yeah, we we... <laughs> Plastic love hate relationship, really. Janice, yeah. we were we've been doing stormwater for you know, Brad's been twenty years. I'm fifteen. You know, we spent a lot of time and and all the guys back at uh, HQ. But really, it's only been in the last few years that we've seen this shift in social media and this big, you know, plastic. It's choking our oceans. Plastics everywhere. And Brad and I like to use the term. It's our gateway pollutant. People understand it. People can see 
you know, plastic out in the ocean. They go, oh, my God, plastic. Well, you know, plastic for us in, in, in stormwater is one of the easiest things to, to get out of the system because you physically screen it. So for us, it's, it's a very good way for us to tell a story and we, and we need to tell our story better because like plastic's only one thing that falls out of the sky. Like it's only one thing that goes out into our oceans, but it's something that people can, you know, it's obvious to them. They, they know it. They see it in everyday life. You talk about nitrogen and um, dissolved and inorganic and, you know, people just, you know, glare out. But if you say plastic, everyone gets it and, um, it's really interesting to hear you say the same thing. Mm. Yeah, and I think also recognizing that it's in the air and you're breathing it mm. is something that's also very tangible to people that might get, hopefully. Yeah, well, let's action. face it. Yeah, let's face it. If, if your uh, research had found, oh, yeah, elevated nutrient concentrations in the dust, people would have gone, oh, whatever. But the fact that you found all this plastic, everyone's gone, holy mackerel, you know, wow, let's get it on the in the news and the media and let's have a podcast about it. Uh, but just, just getting back to that that research, though. So you, you've got these uh, fancy samplers at 11 different sort of uh, national parks and, and undeveloped areas in the States. But how many samplers are we talking about? Is it? you know, a 10 in each spot or I don't know. So there's, there's one sampler at each location. Mm -hmm. They're pretty expensive and there's typically one wet dry sampler, which I attached my sampler to the dry sampler and a bunch of other weather type instruments, Mm. uh, rain gauges, anemometers, things like that. So it's there, it, it, each site differs in the, in the kind of data they collect, but it's a pretty solid, unit at each location collecting a bunch of different data. Um, So we just had one sampler per site, but we took samples every week and every month. For how long? For, well, for 14 months for the plastic study, but we're still collecting samples now. So our project's been going for a few years now. As I mentioned, we're still trying to understand nutrient deposition. It's important for these really pristine ecosystems because we're also starting to see algae blooms in um, high mountain lakes that we've never witnessed before. And so we're trying to understand why that's happening too, which mm. is also still important. Yeah, look, no doubt. But And just getting back to the, the numbers, that, that metric. So you, you, you've synthesized all this data. You've identified there's a whole bunch of plastic. But how much actually plastic are we referring to? Like how much is that deposition rate? A lot. So it varied by site. So it was between 80, 80-ish microplastics per meter squared per day to over 400 on average for the 14-month period that we analyzed. But we did see seasonal differences. Um, and uh, uh, Why? Because the plastic's migrating or something? Like, what, what, why? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it's related to atmospheric flow patterns. Mm. Um, we found that what comes out in the rain tended to be larger in size and was either associated with the air mass moving over a population center or the air mass picking up a lot of dust and moving that dust. So if this, if the air mass neither went through a city nor picked up a lot of dust, we still saw plastics, just not a lot. Mm. But if it went through a city or it picked up a lot of dust, it tended to have more plastics in it. So that told us two really important things. One is that cities are a source. And the second is that 
soil is also a source, which makes sense when you think about plastic deposition from the sky probably isn't new, right? So we just, we're only learning about it Mm. now, but it's Mm. been going on for a while. So most soils are probably contaminated with some amount of plastic. And so if, if the air mass is eroding that soil, it's also eroding plastics in that soil. Yeah. Wow. So just getting back to the numbers, so 80 to 100 pieces of plastic falling on these areas per square meter. So 80 to 100 per square meter per day. Per day. Yeah. And so what is that like? Obviously, these are fairly pristine areas obviously but if you're walking around in these areas how does that actually impact on our own like obviously we're breathing the air does that mean it's it's a reasonable assumption that if i'm walking around these areas and and probably at higher concentrations in urban areas am i actually breathing this material in me or am i somehow ingesting it yeah probably you're right that the concentrations are higher inside and also in cities than in these remote areas, but there is clearly no escaping it at this point. And plastic fibers have been found in lungs for decades. So we know that we know that we're breathing it in and can't speak too much about the biology of Mm. what that means, but there's a handful of articles out there that talk about inflammation based responses that can lead to lesions and even cancer with higher exposures. So most of the studies that have been done have been with workers in the textile industry indoors. And so they're breathing in a lot more plastic fibers than most people would. Yeah. And I guess the next question is what sort of plastic, so we've got an idea of the rate of deposition, but what what plastics are you seeing? So these are microplastics, which are by definition plastics that are less than five millimeters in size. But what sort of plastics are they and and what types? Like, is it clothing fibers? Is it, I don't know. Mostly clothing. About 70 to 75% of the plastics we saw were fibers, um, which were mostly identified as polyester, nylon. Also some potentially uh, fibers from technical clothing, like polypropylene. The particles were harder to identify to what their original plastic was Mm. since Mm. they're very common plastics but about 30 percent of the particles were microbeads and these were really small microbeads so less than 30 microns in diameter so a lot smaller than what's typically been reported for cosmetics and in every color of the rainbow red orange yellow green blue silver black just every color you could imagine we found microbeads and they were really hard to identify what the polymer was because they're so small. They were smaller than the aperture of the FTIR instrument we were using. But we, we were able to identify a handful and they came out as acrylic, which leads us to believe that a lot of these are coming from paint. Wow. There's plastic in paint? Yeah. So, as <sighs> the, well, so I... All I could really do was Google the manufacturers of these microbeads in those size ranges, in those colors, and see what their website says about who they sell to. The main applications were scientific and medical, but also paint. And I think it's probably because it adds interesting dimension to paint colors if you have microbeads. Wow. 
Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I I'm, with, I'm, I'm with you, mate. I'm just like, <laughs> just, fuck, we've got plastic <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean everywhere. We're breathing it in. It's, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's depressing. But at the same time, your research has is, is opened up a massive, you know, can of worms. It's like, oh, well, where else is plastic? What are we, like to Brad's point, am I breathing in plastic? And if I'm in a city, am I going to be breathing in more plastic? It's this research. Uh, has answered a really interesting question, you know, how much plastic is de depositing in our natural areas. But that answer just, you know, brings up a thousand more questions that we need to uh, ask and want answers to. Because fundamentally, it sounds like these the answers to these questions are going to have a significant and direct impact on on the health of the human species and everybody else on this planet. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.